It's Wednesday, June 17th, 2020. I'm Stephen Fee, and this is The Pen Pod, a limited-run podcast from Pen America. On today's edition, as part of our celebration of Pride, a conversation with author Jakira Diaz, who talks about her memoir, Ordinary Girls, the duality of growing up in Puerto Rico as a biracial queer person and finding identification in literature. Then, the White House sues former National Security Advisor John Bolton over his forthcoming book. I'm Stephen Fee, all that coming up on The Pen Pod. Debut author Jakira Diaz stunned critics with her memoir, Ordinary Girls, which published last fall and is now available in paperback. Celebrated for its honesty of a tumultuous childhood as queer and biracial, she documents her own trauma and joys in a text that explores Puerto Rican and American identity. And Jakira Diaz joins me now. Hey, Jakira. Hi, thanks so much for having me. No, it's a pleasure. Thank you. So it's Pride Month. You know, we're coming on the heels of a, of a traumatic number of weeks that has shed long needed light on police violence against black people in this country. How do you think readers might experience your memoir amid these times, even as opposed to when it came out in the fall? Um, well, I guess there are a lot of ways that I could answer that question. I could probably write a whole essay about this, but <laughs> um, I, I'll start with talking a little bit about what the memoir is about, colonization, oppression, and the fight for liberation are themes that run throughout the course of the book. One of the things I write about in Ordinary Girls is how being the Black daughter of a white mother, how being a biracial Black person, and how the way I'm perceived by others changes depending on where in the world I am. My mother's family is white, my father's family is Black, which means that Somewhere in my family tree, there are colonizers as well as colonized people. And Mm -hmm. I often feel that my body carries this violence and it also comes with pain and grief. So much of the book is about lifting up black and brown people, especially black and brown girls, but also about growing up closeted because of the homophobia that permeated our community in the 80s and 90s. And also about the importance of memory and not forgetting the history of violence against us and fighting against the erasure of Black Puerto Ricans. Um, In Puerto Rico, just like in the U.S., Black people were brought to the island enslaved, but also historically we were erased in many other ways. And um, I, I definitely feel that erasure is a violence that we carry in our bodies. It affects everything we do from how we move in the world to how we act, what we have access to, um, to the ways we live and love. I, I would hope that reading Ordinary Girls, which is my story as well as the story of my communities, um, that readers um, would be looking, would, would, that would see this as a conversation and would also be looking for other books that are part of this conversation that are centering um, Black Puerto Rican stories or Black Latinx stories um, and centering Blackness itself. Because more often than not, our stories are erased or forgotten. Um, So often we're not even part of the conversation of what it means to be Black in America. And my experience of growing up was more that we were all, Black Puerto Ricans were often erased and we were just all talked about like we were just Puerto Ricans and our blackness was not even considered a part of who we were, even though it was definitely affecting the way that we lived our lives. I would hope that one of the things that Ordinary Girls does for readers is to 
bring them into that my life and bring them into my experience and my community and show them that this is just one story um, and that there are so many others. Right. I mean, I, I think that idea of of centering, particularly in the in the wake of where we've been over these last few weeks, feels just so essential in literature right now, where, you know, traditionally there's so many voices that have been kept out of the canon. And as you say, that this book stands up as here's one story and imagine all the other stories that maybe aren't being told and haven't been written because of structural inequality. Yeah. Yeah, um, this is this is something that I even talked about in the book a little bit and how I didn't even see myself in books. I didn't see my experience represented, um, which I mean, it's changing now, but there's still there's still so much work to be done. There's so much more that that people in publishing can do to center our stories. Yeah, I think that's right. I, you know, I want to talk. I mean, there books also, of course, play a role in your memoir. And I'm wondering how books and literature defined your childhood, you know, this idea of not seeing yourself in a lot of these books, um, but also defined the other people in your family. Mm. Well, my father, I, I wrote about this in the memoir. My father was, um, when I was little, he was studying um, literature and he was a poet and he loved books. He was always reading and there were always books around the house. And because he spent so much time reading I also became a reader because he was a poet, because I always saw him writing. I, I got this sense that poetry, writing and books were important. One of my earliest memories, um, which which is in the opening chapter, is about my father taking me to the funeral of Juan Antonio Correjer, who was a Puerto Rican protest poet. And um, when I saw when I was at this funeral and I saw all of these people who came to pay their respects people that didn't even know this poet, it became clear to me. It was like a moment of awareness when I first realized that poets were important, that writers were important, and that books could change the world. Um, and it was, it was a moment for me that, that I think it, it was kind of like the origins of my life as a writer when I was very young, when I first started to imagine that I could be a writer, that I wanted to be a writer. And um, it's also like I, I made the connection after I, I was a grown woman looking back at this moment that it was also in a way one of the very last times that I saw my father actively thinking of poetry as something that could change him. And that was like the end of it for him. That was the last major event. Um, also, after I became a reader, before I was a writer, I was a reader. And after I became a reader, like when I was reading regularly, because we were poor, I went to the library and I asked librarians to recommend books. And when we lived in Miami Beach, um, I, I basically asked the, the librarian to give me any book, whatever book, whatever they recommended. And all the books they gave me were always, always books that were about white people written by white people. And so I right. thought that in order to be a writer, you needed to be a white man or that you needed to be white. And it wasn't until I read Esmeralda Santiago's memoir when I was Puerto Rican that I thought, wow, we exist in books, that it was possible that in American publishing um, so that I could publish a book about people like me, um, that American publishing might consider us part of the conversation. Yeah, that's such a powerful moment um, to have that realization. I, you know, I, I want to flag for our listeners. I want to briefly talk about um, 
issues of mental health. Um, you, you plainly talk about your own struggles with depression and suicide in the book. And I wonder how you think that might speak to um, LGBTQIA um, kids and mm -hmm. particularly kids of color. Um, well, in the parts of the book, when I talk openly about suicide, I try to speak to something larger that's not just my own story, but also trying to interrogate this idea of suicidal ideation and our collective obsession with narratives that romanticize the sad girl and suicidal girls. And I was trying to say something about mental illness and its effects on me and on us as a community that was predominantly composed of people of color. I was a girl who suffered from major depression and anxiety and PTSD, which I've struggled with my whole life. And, um, I also wrote about my mother's mental illness. Uh, she went undiagnosed for, and untreated for years. And even after she started treatment, I realized that she never really got adequate mental health care. And this is a problem and a reality for many communities, but so much, much more so in communities of color, um, where a lot of us are disenfranchised, don't have health insurance, don't have access to health care, mental health care or simply can't afford it, even if we have health insurance, because um, a lot of people can't make ends meet. I would hope that what queer kids of color can find as my book is the truth. First, that I wasn't sad, that I was ill, that I was suffering from mental illness, and that I was in so much pain that I wanted to die, that part of it Part of that reason was because I, there was such a stigma around depression and mental illness that I couldn't really talk about anything I was feeling. Um, but I would hope that they would find in my story that my story was not unique, that so many of us go through this suffering in silence and that they, they find some sort of permission to talk about it, to look for help, some sort of validation. Um, knowing that they're not alone, that some of us have lived through this and have survived and that it's possible to survive. Yeah. Yeah. I, I want to ask you a bit about the, the role that, that Puerto Rico and the relationship between Puerto Rico and the rest of the United States plays in this book. Um, you know, we're coming out of, or we will hopefully come out of these twin crises at some point, you know, this, mm -hmm. this virus, but also this moment of of reckoning with with state-sponsored violence, particularly against Black people. Mm. And I'm wondering, are you optimistic at all? Do you feel that we might rethink our ideas of nationhood and politics, how we treat one another, how we treat especially sort of colonized places like Puerto Rico um, in the wake of all this? Um, <laughs> I, I struggle, to be honest with you. Yeah. I, I, I feel like there's so much energy during this moment. I think it's clear that people are as focused on liberation now as they have always been and that more people are becoming aware of their own roles, like how they have been complicit in oppression and how they can be allies in the fight for liberation. But speaking about Puerto Rico, I, I don't honestly, I honestly don't know if it will happen in my lifetime. I think more and more people are talking about it now, how necessary um, Puerto Rico's independence is, but I don't think it's just about independence. I think there also needs to be a conversation about reparations for the Puerto Rican people so that mm -hmm. independence and self-governance can lead to Puerto Ricans thriving and that the island can become self-sustainable. I don't think independence would be possible without the U.S. first even acknowledging that Puerto Rico is in fact a colony. And right. 
acknowledging the many, many ways Puerto Ricans have been denied all of their rights and the need for reparations. Um, so I, am I optimistic? <laughs> um, <laughs> no, not really. I mean, I feel like I could write a, an entire novel about this, uh, imagining um, a future, an alternate future, and it might read as sci-fi. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, but, you know, it is it is it is powerful, I think, to hear you speak in the context of liberation and decolonization, especially right now when it's just so such a necessary part of this dialogue. Um, let me ask you, finally, what are you reading right now? Um, oh, my goodness. I'm reading Brandon Taylor's Real Life, yes. which is so beautiful. It starts off in it's so understated and starts off very slow. And then it kind of grows and grows and grows into this beautiful explosion. That's the only way I can describe it, but I'm almost done with it. I'm almost finished and I don't want it to end. <laughs> That's like the best sensation ever to not yeah. want a book to end. It's, it's magical. Well, oh, author Jakira Diaz, um, her memoir, ordinary girls is now out in paperback. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me. Take care. The Room Where It Happened. No, it's not a Hamilton track. It's the forthcoming memoir from former Trump administration official John Bolton. The ex-national security advisor is now being sued by the president over his book, supposedly for revealing confidential information. Of course, we've seen this movie before. Donald Trump has a track record of suing authors who threaten to disclose information that might embarrass him. Last night, in a statement our senior director of Free Expression Program, Summer Lopez, said, This legal action smacks of desperation. It seems clear the White House's real purpose is to intimidate and to stall the exposure of information that the White House believes will paint the president in a poor light. Given the track record of this administration, the more light shown on its inner workings, the better. And that's our episode for Wednesday, June 17th, 2020. Join us tomorrow for the Pen Pod. You can listen to all our episodes at pen.org. Follow us at Pen America on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Sign up on our website for our daily Dare newsletter. That's where we track major stories about literature, free expression, and the news of the world. I'm Stephen Fee for Pen America. This is the Pen Pod. See you tomorrow.